All right, Romans, the 12th chapter. We have been reading verses 4 and 5, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We've been talking about what it means to be a healthy, vibrant church. We just said in the Apostles' Creed, we believe in the Holy Christian Church. The church is made up of many people of faith who come together and we create a living organism, the Bible talks about, that's designed to advance the kingdom of God. And we've been looking at what it means to be a healthy church and going through the different points that Paul talks about. We made it to as far as verse 12 last week. This is the third week we've been looking at this. And we'll pick it up again at verse 12. He starts out, be joyful in hope. We talked about what that means to have true biblical hope. Hope today is taken on a different meaning. It means it's sounds more like wish you know are you going to be okay oh i hope so you know it's wishing crossing our fingers you know that that kind of hope that's not what the bible's talking about when it says hope the true definition of hope actually in the dictionary means to desire with expectation when a christian is filled with hope he has full expectation that what he or she is desiring from god will in fact happen that's why you walk around in a joyful state it's not, oh, me, oh, my, I wish, I wish, I wish. It's confident hope, knowing God, knowing your answer is coming, the check is in the mail, as we said last week. So that's the first phrase in verse 12. The second phrase we want to focus on this morning is where he says, patient in affliction. Now, one wouldn't think patient and affliction would be very exciting things to put in a phrase, but we have both of them here. Now, First of all, a lot of people think that if you really are connected with God, the one thing you will never have in your life is, in fact, affliction. But they are sadly mistaken. The truth is, many people of faith, you, if you are walking with God at all, you will experience affliction when things go south in your life, when things are not going well at all. I thought if I believed in Jesus, I'd never have any problems. No, you were on drugs when you thought that. <laughs> if you're going to trust God, you're going to experience affliction, and oftentimes, intentionally, God will point you down the path of affliction. Why? To help you grow up, to mature, and to learn to put your trust in Him regardless of your circumstances. One of the things God will do is push you out of the nest, just like a mother bird will push a baby bird out of a nest. Now you have to understand the baby bird doesn't want to go out of the nest. They like it there. It's warm and cozy and mom brings in pizza every day. You know, she doesn't have, they don't have to do anything. But then mama takes the thing and shoves it out. If you ever watch these documentaries, it's quite funny to watch, but the little thing's freaking out. <laughs> doesn't want to go. She finally pushes it and oh, they start to learn how to fly. God wants you to learn how to fly and to be patient in your affliction. Now, a lot of the problems here is we are very impatient people. And if we do have a hard time, we want it over as quickly as possible. We're all this way. I'm this way. But when you're going through a hard time and it's lasting a while, there's nothing really wrong. It's just God's trying to teach you something. Now, it's difficult to, to uh, look at the concept of patience and affliction in the Bible without running across the story of Job. And we want to take a look at Job this morning. Job, the first half. Now, 
As you read the book of Job, it looks like Job, J-O-B, but it's spelled Job. Uh, it starts out where Satan is talking to God. And they're in a conversation and God is saying to Satan, have you noticed Job? He's great. He loves me no matter what happens. And Satan basically says, yeah, yeah, blah, blah, blah. He loves you because you've blessed him so well. Man, anybody who gets blessed as much as Job's going to love God. I mean, you take that stuff away from him. Now we're talking a different story. We pick it up in verse 9 where Satan says, does, God, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. He was an extremely wealthy man. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, okay, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. You can't touch him. But you can touch anything he has. Let's see what happens. Well, then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And then it says, one day... When Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine over at the oldest brother's house, they're all hanging out, a messenger came, from, came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off and they put all the servants to the sword. I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. Well, that's terrible news. All of his oxen, all of his donkeys, all of this have been ripped off by this raiding party. All the servants were killed, and you're the only one. Oh, my goodness. But the Bible says, while he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the fire of God fell from the sky. Now, we don't know what happened there. It was a big lightning storm. I don't know, but it says it burned up the sheep and the servants, and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Whoa, really? But while he was still speaking, Another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. And they put the servants to the sword. I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. Now, I got to tell you, this is adding up to be one bad day <laughs> for Job. But the worst was yet to come. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters... They were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them. They're all dead. And I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. By this time, Job realizes he has lost everything. All of his wealth, all of his influence, and the children that he loved dearly, when you read the beginning of it, talks about how committed he was to these children. They're all killed in a freak windstorm that smashes the house and kills them all. Next verse, it says that this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. This is Eastern culture to this day in the Middle East, if you'll see people mourning and stuff. They're very dramatic. You know, they howl and they throw dust in the air and they rip their clothes and it's all part of the culture has been for thousands and thousands of years. Job does this. But then the next sentence, quite striking. Then he fell to the ground in worship. 
How do you get there? Here is a man who has lost everything. And instead of getting angry at God, he falls down and he starts to worship God. It's quite shocking. So many people today, as I listen to them and watch them and the different struggles they go through, they, get, they seem to get angry at God very, very easily. There's people who get mad at God if it rains on a day they planned an outdoor picnic or something. They're just mad at God. Think seriously. Others get angry at God because they got laid off and stuff. And while certainly that's a difficult thing and nobody wishes for that, you're angry, angry and pointing fingers at God? Where does that come from? Had one lady tell me she was mad at God because her boyfriend broke up with her. Seriously. You're angry at God because your boyfriend, God had nothing to do with it. Your boyfriend came to his senses. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> You're mad at God? He worships. And then he says this. Now, this is a very famous uh, portion of Scripture. You'll hear this quoted often, even in secular culture. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. I mean, immediately his response was, look, I came into this with nothing. I'm going to leave with nothing. I can't put my trust in things. And then this phrase, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Usually this is quoted in the King James Version. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. This is Job. He says this on the worst day of his life. The Lord gave, the Lord take away, but the name of the Lord is to be praised. And he worshiped and celebrated God in the midst of this horrible Horrible today. In, in all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. He, he wasn't saying God did anything wrong. Well, as we continue to read the story, Satan is back up in front of God again, and he's highly irritated. He's ticked off. He took everything from Job, and Job still praised God. So Satan eggs it on, he says, well, yeah, I mean, it's just stuff. Who cares about stuff? But you strike the boy physically. Watch what he does then. You make him sick, then he'll curse your face. And then God said, all right, you can have at him. Don't kill him. But do what you will. And we pick it up in verse 7 of chapter 2. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head, he breaks out in pure misery. He has nothing. He's lost everything. And here he sits with a piece of broken pottery and scrapes himself with it as he sits among the ashes. And then his wife said to him, now... <laughs> One can't help but look at this and go, oh, man, the devil knew how to get to Job. He took everything and left his wife. 
<laughs> I don't care who you are. That's funny right there. That's <laughs> And then she goes off on him. See, I tell you, nobody knows how to push your buttons like your spouse. Ooh, some of the sweetest people in the world. <laughs> some of y'all out there just looking so sweet and holy this morning. Get you home. She comes and she encourages the boy. Are you still holding on? Just curse God and die. Thank you, dear. That's just, just what I needed to hear today. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? I mean, man, this is a man of character. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Then as you read the rest of the book of Job, it's quite brutal, actually. If you're having a hard time sleeping at night, read that thing. But uh, the first two chapters sets the story up, and then like the next 38 whatever plus chapters, uh, him and three friends get together and they discuss theology. Well, he thought, oh, this is what I think about God. Oh, this is what I think about God. It's quite agonizing to read. Finally, at the very end, chapter 42, God sees the faithfulness of this man and starts blessing him again. And we read, it says, The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had now 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven more sons, and three daughters. Apparently, he and the wife made up. <laughs> they got busy, you know. Just, you know, we all have our days. Just move on. It'll work through the issues. And then he, uh, of his three daughters, his, the first daughter was named Jemima, the second, Keziah, and the third, Karen Hapush. And nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. They were famous, these gorgeous girls. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. Very unusual in that culture. In that culture, all the inheritance would go to the boys. The girls got jack squat. That's why it was so desperate for them to find husbands and whatnot. But in this case, Papa even took care of the girls. But what a time of trial that this man withstood in his life. Now it reminds me of a verse of scripture in the New Testament. The Apostle James writes, he says, consider it pure joy. Pure joy. Now there's joy and then there's pure joy. I was just in Costa Rica and one of the major phrases from Costa Rica is pura vida. Pura vida, pure life. They celebrate life. Pura vida. Christians should be marked by pura vida. Pure joy. I like what he's saying here. Cool. Consider pure joy. When? Whenever you face trials of many kinds. Huh? Because you got to understand, 
Most people don't think of pura vida when everything starts going wrong in their lives. But he's saying, man, you need to celebrate, which is still an act of worship like Job did. Celebrate even when everything goes wrong in your life. I love this. Consider pure joy. The context actually is of, of celebration, of having a party. It's like calling friends over to celebrate. We're having a party. You're invited. Woo! We're celebrating. What are you celebrating? My life sucks. <laughs> Hallelujah! Some of y'all need to have a My Life Sucks party this week. Just get your head out of the mully grubs for crying out loud. Start celebrating. Don't let the circumstances of your life dictate your joy. If you do that, you will always be a victim. Things will always go wrong with you. Do you know why some people in your life, everything always goes wrong? It's because your joy is tied to your things. See, and the devil knows. Remember, Satan's walking around. He's looking for people to tick off, right? Now, if he knows all you need to be miserable is for your mother-in-law to say something to you. <laughs> what do you think he's going to do this week? He's going to arrange a meeting with mama <laughs> just to tick you off. If he knows that all you need is for someone at work to treat you in a nasty way, what do you think's going to happen to you this week? He's going to virtually guarantee that somebody at work is going to say something mean and nasty to you and your life's going to go to the toilet. Man alive, some of you just, it's like spiritually, you have a big sign on your head, kick me. Come after me. You need to be, have you noticed, those of you who've been around for a while in this thing, have you noticed that some people are just always under attack? They're always, the world is constantly, just everything is coming against them all the time. Then you got other people that seem like they're never under attack. Why is that? Because the people who are always under attack and some affliction or something in their life these are the people they have to have everything just right in their life i just love stuff i love stuff i love stuff <laughs> my precious my precious stuff i love my, my precious stuff your circumstances have to be just everybody's got to talk to you just the right way or you're miserable these are the people that satan just has a heyday with it's easy to tick you off. It's easy to bring you into misery. The ones Satan leaves alone are the ones that are just, they don't care. Satan looks at guys like me and goes, oh, he's an idiot, you know, and goes after you guys. <laughs> because we've demonstrated, no, I, okay, so everything goes wrong, I'm still going to praise God. If I have affliction, I'm still going to praise God. You start living a life like that, you will find you get less encounters like this in your life. Man, it should take more than just a few things going wrong to send you south. Man, some of you, man the devil knows. All he's got to do is make one unexpected financial expense to come along you this week. And you'll have a fit. What do you think he's going to do to you? Man, that... That 
vacuum cleaner is going to choke to death or that car is going to blow something or that washing machine is going to be spinning and go up in smoke. <laughs> Why? That's all it takes, see. That's all it takes because the minute something doesn't go right for you, the minute something doesn't just go just the way you get mad, some of you cuss. Christians cussing, using God's name in vain because stuff doesn't go right. And the devil just sits and laughs his butt off. It's amazing he has a butt at all. <laughs> Consider it pura vida when you face trials of many kinds because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything if you're going to really grow up and be strong. You've got to learn to be patient in affliction. Many, the Bible says, are the afflictions of the righteous. But the Lord delivers them out of them all. It's great fun to, you know, when we're going through affliction, there should be part of you that just should be smiling. You're just waiting for God to show up. What you smiling about? My life stinks. <laughs> Why are you happy? Because God's hiding somewhere, man. I just know. <laughs> this is cool. This is cool. Because when it gets really, really bad, that's when he shows up. You know? <laughs> I know you're there. It starts to change the way that you approach life. And remember, he's talking about a church. A healthy church. If, you're going to, if we're going to be a healthy church, we've got to be filled with people who are patient in affliction. Who just don't freak out when things aren't going just the way you think it should. Come on. If we're going to really be a strong church, you should be patient in affliction. I should have to work to tick you off. I should not work to get rid of you. Are you hearing me? But so many people, you know, if the pastor doesn't look at you right away, I'll never go to that church anymore. Why? Because he, he looked at me ugly. <laughs> Are you kidding me? We just came through this whole budget thing. You know, some people left the church. Not that many, as you can see, but some left the church. Why? Some of it didn't take two days. Two days. As soon as someone, well, I don't like, I don't agree with that. <laughs> I'm leaving. Really? That's all it takes? Clearly, we are not patient in affliction. Man, I should have to work all year to tick you off before you leave. Why? Because we're family. Well, Pastor, I don't know. What if we don't all agree? If there's real love, then you'd never, there'd be no disagreements if there was real love. Are you insane? <laughs> if the true definition of love is absence of conflict... Then a lot of married couples here are in trouble this morning. Are you hearing me? If you've been married more for a week, you've had conflict. Doesn't mean there isn't love. Just means you drive each other crazy, that's all. You work through it. Why? Because you love each other. You know, a truly committed couple, a happy married couple, is not a couple that doesn't have problems. It's a couple that's committed to each other. These are the couples that the only way out is in a body bag for them. <laughs> My wife says, the only way getting out of here is in a bag, Jack. You ain't getting out of here. You're not going anywhere. 
Just because there's disagreements and this and that, seriously. And to the credit of many, because there have been some that, even through some of the changes that we had, caught in my face, yelled at me, I yelled back at them, they're still here. Hallelujah. That's family. That's family. That's okay. You think I'm an idiot? You say, you're an idiot. I say, I think you're an idiot. Oh, praise God then. Hallelujah. that's, That's life. That's life. We need to become patient. Long-suffering. The Bible, you've heard that phrase, long-suffering? It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, long-suffering. It means suffering for a long time. Sometimes it takes time. Be patient. Not just tolerant of things you don't like, but think of it. Patient in affliction. When we get that element working in us, now we're starting to be a real church. Now we're starting to really have something. Now we're really family. Because real family, real family tick each other off. You got a brother. You got a sister. You know, they didn't all, man, I, when I grew up, we used to just enjoy beating up my brothers. Especially Eddie. <laughs> Poor Eddie. Me and Steve, we just delighted in pummeling him. It was hilarious. <laughs> but don't you dare beat up on him. You beat up on him. Now we're talking different, see? To this day, you get a bunch of gungers in a room, it's like insanity. <laughs> I remember when I was growing up, we'd, we'd invite friends over, some, you know, real peaceful, calm children, you know. They spend the day with us. By the end of the day, they're just in a state of shock. So what's the matter? You all hate each other. No, we don't. You said he's an idiot. He is an idiot. (laughs) It doesn't mean we don't love each other. We're patient in affliction. I'm going to have the ushers come at this time. Get ready to serve communion. Family, true church, a healthy church, patient, patient, patient. Seriously, I'm not exaggerating. If you're really part of this church and you take it seriously, it should take a lot to get you to leave. I'm serious. It should take a lot. I'm not saying that you just tolerate something bad for an eternity, but man, you know, a couple of weeks, give me a break. A couple of months, man, it's a good year or so before you finally can't take it anymore. Why? Because you're patient in affliction. We're that kind of group of people that we are truly committed to one another. See, we start being that kind of church where there's real love demonstrated to each other, even despite the fact we don't all agree. That's what gets the world's attention. I believe that's what it gets the Spirit of God's attention. And he can start to flow more powerfully and convincingly through us as a group of people when we truly love each other. But remember, love is not the absence of conflict. Love is commitment despite conflict, despite troubles, despite 
frustrations. That's when real love kicks in. Well, we're getting ready to have our time of communion this morning. This is when we turn our attentions to what Christianity is all about. 2,000 years ago, God gave up his son on a cruel cross, a brutal death. Innocent. Jesus took what he did not deserve so you and I could get what we don't deserve, which is forgiveness for our sins. My question to you this morning is, have you taken advantage of that forgiveness in your life? Have you experienced God and really experienced his love and power so much that you would begin to praise and thank him even in the midst of great difficulty? Say, wow, how do you get there? You get there by really knowing God and experiencing him. And it starts by coming to him and asking him to forgive you of your sins and come into your life. I'm going to invite everybody to bow their heads in a word of prayer. And I'm going to pray a prayer. To, and I'm going to invite everybody to pray this along with me. If you'll pray this prayer with us, really believe it from the bottom of your heart and be sincere towards God. You can start to experience God's grace in your life. You can start to take your first steps of faith this morning. Let's pray this prayer. Say, Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God and that you loved me so much. You went to the cross and you took my punishment. I ask you to come into my life and to forgive me of my sins. I now surrender myself to you. Amen.